welcome everyone to the very first episode of Chatterbox Video Game Radio, recorded in different places. My name's Alon. And I'm Aura. And uh, this is good, because we're not going to be near each other anymore. Totally different places right now. Yeah, that's amazing. Your internet's even holding up. I'm excited. I know, with with all of the Soviet bandwidth that I'm using, <laughs> and by all this I mean about 128k a second. Yeah, we're cruising. Or, or a minute, I should say. <laughs> or, no, wait, that's a second. It just feels like a minute. I, I hope it's a second, otherwise I don't think your voice would carry to my house. Yeah. Um, you know what, Alon? I got to give you a lot of credit because I listened to our last show, mm-hmm. and this was probably the first show I've actually listened to ever, and it, I couldn't tell. I couldn't tell that we were doing what we were doing. Well, that's good. It's it's fantastic because I I always think that uh, other other people's ideas command a lot of scrutiny and my ideas are always right the first time, <laughs> and you were totally right the first time too. So all right, well I guess you know one for me and you. Um, so so I've been playing a game this week and I wonder if you can guess what that one game is. Uh, is it the game Fightin' Tall? It is. It's Fightin' Tall. So so we recorded. Our last show on Monday, which, of course, is the day before Tuesday, which is the game or the day when games release. And uh, in the case of this game, there was a midnight launch. And I was really on the fence. Do I get it? Do I not get it? I played it enough during the beta. I don't really care. Um, but my friends play it. Uh, and and they're like, wait, you are you are getting it, right? So, of course, I, um, I trucked myself down to the Microsoft store where I like to buy Microsoft games. Well, it's not a Microsoft game, but it's for a Microsoft system. And uh, and I was there for their midnight whatever, and there was some football player and a radio station. It was a lot like the Xbox One release, and uh, well, the system release, right? And it was just ridiculous and over the top and kind of a waste of my time. But I did get the game at almost exactly midnight, which enabled me to go home and quickly or not so quickly apply the patch that was needed since I couldn't play the game without it. And then by about, I'd say, 1.30 in the morning... I got I got to playing the game I think with Johnny, and uh, pretty much every day since then I've put in at least a little bit of time playing this game, which to me is a mark of apparent success. The game is good. I knew it was good because of the beta, um, and it was so good they got me to actually shell out money. And uh, I don't have much else to say about it because we've talked about it in the past, and the game isn't exactly it's, it's not terribly different than what the beta displayed. Obviously, there are some things we didn't get to do in the beta that we can do now but um it's a good game i'm playing it relatively incessantly i've played a lot with uh pen 15 actually so that's been fun and and that's about it it's uh it's a thumbs up you know well the only thing i have to say about it is uh i agree that it's probably also i'll probably agree that it's probably also a good game but you haven't even seen it not only have i not seen it i have no predilections to do so yeah, but you used to be into first-person shooters, right? Because you played Unreal Tournament or Unreal something a yeah, lot. Yeah, that was a misnomer. That was an old wives' tale. I liked to. I actually, I actually learned my chops on Unreal. I liked to make things with a tool, but that was only because it was a fantastic tool. Oh. I the whole time I very I played very little of actual the actual game because um, the first person stuff is not my style. So this this leads me into a very interesting question that I suspect we might talk about for a while. Um, how it's hard for me to fathom that you could be terribly good at designing levels for a game without actually being interested in that type of game. Like if you were into the genre but didn't play Unreal, yeah. I'd understand. But if you're right. not into first person at all, how can I trust you as someone to design? a good level for it. Well, it's very interesting that you say that because there's something that I discovered in the process of making levels for that game. And that is... Well, mostly it was... The funny thing that happened was that I learned that the Unreal community specifically, the community of players, there is a specific... There are certain things they value in their game and there's specific types of maps that they like and there's conversely there's specific things that they don't like and if you make your map or your level even though 
it may be a very nice piece of work and a very good accomplishment. If you don't do it in that style that supports that type of play, and I'll say what those details are in a minute, then a lot of people will not like your level. And so what what I did was basically, look, I'm not going to... I don't care about the regular things that are valued in a multiplayer map for Unreal. I wanted to do something that was just meaningful for myself. So I just did whatever I thought was cool. And some of the things that I learned specifically was that the stuff that they like is basically a, a, a kind of topographic space where you never, there's no dead ends, you never really have to make any abrupt movements, where you can very smoothly basically travel from one area to another uh, without ever stopping. And that makes sense for that kind of gameplay. Uh, but what I was doing, you could even say I was just, I, I didn't want to make exactly that game anyway. I wanted to make something that was kind of like a, a different game. And in fact, the tools have that extensibility that they let you make different games in it anyway. So the thing that was interesting was that people who were diehard players panned it, and people who weren't liked it, and it was because of that those differences. But, I mean, people recognized it as being a good level to the point that they actually hired you to do other stuff. And I imagine that if someone was looking at an Unreal level to diagnose, you know... Or, or to discover talent, or even accidentally discover talent, right? They must right. have been fans of the game. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there looking at mods. Not necessarily. This was the irony of the whole thing, was that the first the first game company I got hired onto, which was, in fact, a direct result of me having uh, made the work that I made in using the Unreal tool, and this was around 2000. It was, it was, using, the, it was using Unreal 2, which was like, Unreal Tournament 2004, actually. So that's a while ago. But the irony was that the people who noticed the most in terms of uh, ways that ultimately helped my career, they didn't play, they had no interest in, in or played the first-person shooters either. So maybe that was good, because if they had a lot of knowledge of that arena, maybe they wouldn't have been as impressed. But, but that's, that's really surprising to me. Then how would you even get them to look at it? Well, I made a web page. And so I made basically a web page to advertise. I didn't just distribute the map. I made a little kind of show and tell of, okay, here's my level. Here are the cool things in the level. This is why – this is what they do and how they work and so on and so forth. So I actually kind of made a little tour to explain to people what I did and how I did it. So I feel like if I were doing that, I would say, all right, here's the cool elements in this level, and this is why it would be attractive to a player of this game, right? Like, if I was a first-person shooter fanatic and I understood all the nuances, first of all, I understand the grammar and, and vocabulary that they use about their game, but I can also understand that, like, for instance, you said no dead ends, right? So you had to understand that they were interested in that. How did you even acquire the knowledge of, of what they like and don't like if you weren't a player and interacting with other players? Well, all that stuff was after the fact, you see. Okay. I did it, and then I, and then when I received criticism about it, I was like, oh, okay. This is what they like, and this is what they actually don't like. And so all those things I said, I basically gleaned off of feedback from my map. So it, I didn't know those things while I was making it. I only learned them after. So are you saying that you made what you wanted, and then they didn't like it, so you adjusted it? No. I'm just saying that I, I did whatever I wanted, and some people didn't like it, and I figured out what they were talking about. But it didn't matter. It didn't change the product. No. All right. This is fascinating to me. Which, the, which by the way, I think is also the way that one should go about making things. This leads, I think, pretty well into a topic that I wanted to cover later in the show. Yeah, doesn't it? It's, we didn't plan this at all, but it sounds just like that one. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so do you want to go right into that? Um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. Why not? Okay. Let's do it. So uh, I came across an article. Um, I guess GDC is happening right now. Uh, right this second. Yeah, unfortunately, we are not there. 
ourselves. We do have some friends over there. Uh, you know, Tristan, we've had Tristan on the show before. He's in, in what they call The Mix, which I guess is a, a mix of indie games being shown off at GDC right now. Uh, I, I imagine it's something on the order of IndieCade or whatever that you see at other events. Um, anyway, he's showing off his new game, Grave, which... I mean, it's not finished, right? But it's in the works. It's a horror whatever game. People should go play it. I think he's talked about it on the show before. Um, anyway, we are not there. But, you know, every time I've been to GDC, I always come away from those. I, I listen to a bunch of designers or, or developers talk. And I'm like, this would be great to talk about on the show. And then inevitably, I forget most of the things that I thought were interesting because I'm too lazy to write them down. And, uh, and we don't talk about a lot of the cool stuff that happened there. I mean, some, yes, but not all of it. And so this is sort of neat because while it's happening, I'm reading about it. Other people pick out what they think is interesting and blog about it immediately. And then I can pick, about, pick it out and just talk about it on the show, which I feel is a little bit easier for me. Anyway, uh, one of the developers of the game, Monaco, are you familiar with this game at all? I'm so familiar about it. I have my, I get, I get a little flutter in my heart every time I hear about it. Because it makes me so upset about something. Does that mean you, you've actually played it? I actually, yes, I have in fact played it. Okay, so I've played it a little bit, like one night for maybe an hour, right? That's that's my limited knowledge of the game in person. Um, but for those who haven't seen the game, it is it is interesting. It's uh, you know it's an indie game that was relatively popular. It's on Xbox Live. It's on you know PC and all that stuff. It was in a recent Humble Bundle, so I actually own it for the Mac, uh, but I haven't actually played it on the Mac, only on Xbox. Yeah, the guy's doing very well with it. Yeah, it's it's been popular, and it's got a very interesting look, and I think that's one of the things that's attractive about it to me. But um, I want to talk about what he discussed about Monaco at GDC. And so we're going to break right now, but that's what we'll cover as soon as we get back. Chatterboxers, how much do you love Amazon.com? Since you're like me, the answer is a lot. And since you love Chatterbox almost as much, here's what I want you to do. Next time you get a new game, a pair of socks, downloadable MP3, anything really, go to helpchatterbox.com. It takes you to Amazon, but when you buy something, we get a piece of the action. That's good for us, and Amazon feels good because you didn't buy it from GameStop. Helpchatterbox.com. Remember it. Bookmark it. Tattoo it backwards on your forehead. And yes, all I'm asking you to do is buy stuff you are already going to buy. Just do it at helpchatterbox.com. All right, we're back. It's Chatterbox Video Game Radio. So I was talking about Monaco. And uh, or Monaco. Do, do you really think it's called that? As I like, as I like to, as I prefer to pronounce it. Okay, fine. So uh, actually, my preferred pronunciation is Monaco. That's good. That's good for you. So it's called Monaco, and in this game, it's it's kind of a. I don't. I don't even want to say what kind of game it is, but it's. It has some stealth elements. It is kind of puzzle e. Uh, it is top down with sort of rudimentary but interesting neon like graphics. And, uh, you know, it's got a goal, like you have to get you and probably a couple other players, depending on how many you're playing with, um, what, what are you to like get a treasure and bring it back or just get from start to finish and go up to the next level? Is that, I don't even remember it enough. Um, but basically for, for the most part, it's, it's stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's funny because I didn't know all these details that, um, that piece that we are referring to has revealed about basically how a certain features came about but I, I just it's just I think the best way to describe it is it's a, it's an action game it's a multiplayer action game yeah. what's important for someone who hasn't played it to understand is you have to traverse with a group of people from one part of the level to another part of the level and in doing so you know you go through doors and you set off alarms and there are lasers and there are guards 
um, that you have to try to get everybody past without getting caught by the guards. Yeah, you you avoid all those things. So I guess that's where the quasi-stealthy parts come in. Yeah, and so each player also can have a different skill. There could be like the guy who can pick locks or the guy who can, I don't know, do something else. It, it's tough because I don't even know all the details of the game. But that's not what I'm I'm trying to, to talk about as being interesting from this guy's uh, GDC discussion. It's that he's he specifically talked about collecting feedback from players and how they reacted to that feedback and making the point that some players might have thought that basically they didn't care at all about the feedback that they got because they didn't do what the players wanted or at, at least on the surface it didn't appear as if they did what the players what the beta players wanted them to do by adjusting the game in the way that they had suggested rather what happened was and I'll, I'll give you some context here is like um the is it the burglar character that some some character who's who's stealthy-ish um he only can see so much of the level like he can't tell where all the guards are and the players were complaining like we need to be able to see the whole level we need to, more than just a line of sight because um, the level the whole game is really dark and you can only see in front of your own character um so they were complaining about that and so instead of just giving the players what they wanted, which was, you know, brightening up the whole level or giving them some indicator for where guards are or something, they added a new player type called the lookout. And that player had the ability to see more of the level and share that with the other player. Um, and so basically they, they solved for the problem without giving the player what they were asking for, which is sort of like what you talk about, you know, it's not always best to just give the player what they want because they don't know what they want. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll take it even a step further. It's always worst to purely take at face value what somebody comments and, and basically give what somebody's asking for because they're, you got to understand that everything that's said about anything, uh, but to bring it back down to earth, anything that's said about a commentary about a game is actually a commentary about that person's history and background with games and how much they know. So the thing is, uh, I'm not going to say that Henry Ford quote again, but if you just listen to what these people say, then you're, what you're actually doing is you're prostrating yourself from all of the history and background and experience and expertise that you bring to making your own game if you just listen to what people say. The smart thing to do, and what you should always do, in my opinion, is you have to understand feedback in the spirit, not just the spirit, but in the sense and the context that it's given. And your job is to figure out not only uh, not only is what people mean different from what they say, uh, especially in these cases, because they're just not astute enough to, they're not going to sit there and study all the angles like you have. So they're just going to say the first thing that comes to mind. So you have to appreciate that too. And basically you have to figure out what the issue is uh, and translate that from the feedback you hear without taking it literally. Because if you take it literally, you will always be steered wrong. Yeah, I, I imagine that a lot of the feedback you get, at least you know, in this situation and probably many others, it'd basically be a player is having a tough time and they think, well, what key could I be given to make this easier? And, and ease... Uh, or reduced difficulty is not necessarily a good thing, right? I mean, it's right. and, often and plus, not. And plus, here's the really interesting thing to me. Uh, players who give comments in this context like this, they'll just say the first thing that comes to mind, and they're going to say the most obvious thing because that's, I mean, that's, that's just the dynamic. They're just going to say the first thing that they think of and they think it's good and because they're not going to bother to think deeply. They're just going to react. It's your job to do the deep thinking. And I think that listening to feedback blindly is really irresponsible because you're shirking your own responsibility. So did you ever find working on on big games with like big corporate breathing down your neck, did you find that this sort of blind feedback would be given and then it would be it would be heard by people who aren't really designers, you know, for, for lack of a better word, we'll just say the suits. Like, did the suits hear this feedback and say, all right, make this change because that's what people are asking for? And they would get upset if you were like, no, there's a better way to do this? Not always precisely in that way, but this sort of thing happens all the time. And this is something that it was really shocking to me 
um, initially, but you you eventually figure out this is like it's a really symptomatic. Well, it's a very pervasive problem, and it's it's a, it's symptomatic of the whole everybody's a designer effect, which is when we're talking about a skill as soft as designing the game, everybody thinks that they know as much as you do. Because on the face of it, right, coming up with an idea, let's say some random person off the street, that takes no more effort than at face value or in first inspection anyway how long it takes somebody like me who's been studying this deeply for the past 10 years and, and more. It doesn't – you can't tell the difference between an idea that's been thought through uh, severely and something that was just thrown out off the cuff. And it takes, it takes a certain kind of skill and experience and knowledge to be able to evaluate that. And the problem is, is that if you don't have that, you don't know what you're missing. So a lot of times what happens is that we get this kind of feedback and it's a very tough battle, especially in a corporate situation, to explain or at, at least make your case that, hey, even though a lot of people are saying this, that's A, that's not actually what they mean and B, what they're saying is not actually what we should do about it. We should do this other thing about it because of all those other reasons. So – I'm also curious about the design process, right? Like everybody is an armchair designer, myself included. I, I definitely don't have the experience that, that you have. And so I'll think to myself, like, for instance, if I think, hey, I want to make a cool little game for iOS, right, that sort of has this element. And like, I've got an idea that I've been floating around in my head for a few weeks now. Um, but I just think, well, what's what's fun about this to me? Or why do I want to not really why. That's what I'm saying is I don't think deeply enough about why. It's just like, I think this element or piece of a game is really fun. I'd like to build something completely off of that. Um, do you, as someone who starts, you know, has to have a whole plan for how to build a game, do you sort of set out the list of things that you want to accomplish at the beginning? Like, in the case of Monaco, it would be, you know, we want there to be some stealth. Obviously, it needs to be challenging. Uh, we want it to have... Uh, to be built in such a way where there is a major benefit to be multiplayer because it's really hard to play single player. We want everyone working together. Right, right. And then I think, okay, someone makes this suggestion, like, do this thing. Uh, allow all of the players to see where all of the um, where all of the guards are. And they think, okay, well, that would make it easier for people, so they'd be happier with that. But it would reduce the reliance on multiplayer. Um, it might reduce the challenge and basically hurt all of these checklist items that I'm wanting to build into the game. Do you have something like that? Like a checklist that you use to help define whether or not a new element or suggestion or change is a good one to make because maybe it, it hurts some of these other things that are core to your design? Yeah, so this also I will answer indirectly. And actually, this is I think this is also speaks toward some of these other things that you'll probably want to mention about this piece we're talking about. There's there's something that happens inevitably every time you're in a game development cycle. And that thing is that you have you have some kind of I guess platonic vision of what the game is and what is what what are kinds of things that make sense that the game is and what are kinds of things that don't make sense as belonging to the game whatever that means, right? And sometimes you can think of this as what the game vision is. And the problem, and this problem I don't think gets enough attention and people don't talk about it enough and it doesn't get enough respect either, is that, look, no matter how good you are, no matter how good your team is, there are always going to be limitations and trade-offs between what you think it should do and what, it, what you actually can make it do in terms of implementation, execution. Those are always going to deviate. And I think that the wrong way to go about making a game is to have a dictatorial vision where it's like, okay, it has to do all of these things and everything is either, right from the start, is either going to be included in that group of things it should be or excluded according to what the original vision was. And the reason is because it's, you're just, you're never going to get there anyway. So it's, it's a fool's game uh, I mean, I guess, like, maybe there's a few very limited exceptions. 
unless you really have unlimited resources like Sony does sometimes, like with God of War or Journey or games like that, you're always going to have to make these concessions of what you could make the game do versus what you wish it could do. And I know this is slightly a different angle than what you were getting at. But by by knowing all that ahead of time and by respecting that aspect of the process, you find out that you have to basically... You have to be more fluid, and it's better to think of it in terms of when I'm considering a change... You have to consider how it affects the entire product systematically and if that makes sense and if the resulting systematic product makes sense rather than considering changes piecemeal. Get it? Um, Yeah. And now it is a very good time for us to go to break. So let's do that and uh, we'll come back again on all cylinders. We'll be right back. to Chatterbox Video Game Radio. It's a number one. Woo-hoo! All right, we're back. Uh, we were just talking about Monaco and uh, a lot of the design. Well, I had a lot of design questions for you, actually. Um, I think you probably have a bit more to talk about here. Looking at the article, there's not a ton more that I wanted to go into, except this one one bit that he mentioned. Um, he didn't say specifically what he thinks the game is, uh, what Monaco is, uh, what type of game, I should say. But he was pointing out that they had to deal with people thinking that it's a stealth game and trying to like help them build a stealth game and them having to say, at least to themselves, like it's not a stealth game. And, and he admitted that they failed in communicating the theme of the game, uh, either through the game or through other methods. He said, like, they basically just did that talking to press, like it's not a stealth game. But it feels very much like one anyway to the player. I guess if I had to say what kind of game it is, I, he probably feels like it's just a puzzle game that that has, like, actors that do stealthy things. Um, so maybe that's why people think it is that. But when in reality, it's it's a puzzle game, I think. Yeah, it's it's a really that's actually a really interesting angle because uh, here's another aspect that I don't feel like people talk about enough. There's there's certain kinds of activities, I mean activities that you do in playing this game or that game that either map well to a good gameplay situation or don't map well to good gameplay, and I think this is another one of the pitfalls that developers, even highly seasoned ones, super professional corporate developers can fall into. And that pitfall is trying so hard to retain the theme and keep that intact that the actual game as played suffers for it. Does that make sense to you? And I'm, I'm sure you can think of some examples. Um. I mean, a little bit, but I feel like that kind of goes contrary to what we were talking about before, where I was suggesting, like, they they need to keep really dialed into what their original idea was rather than letting themselves be taken off course by right. players' it's, feedback. It's not just about retaining where you thought the original idea was. I guess there's a component of that. But what I'm speaking more about uh, with this one is that uh, here's it's, it's a mappability issue. And, and here's the thing that I think is should trump all aspects of uh, theme or appearances, but often doesn't. And once again, I say this, it doesn't often to the detriment of the actual game as played. And what ends up happening is you don't... Well, here, look, here's the thing. There's certain kinds of activities or actions or interactions that map really well to really interesting gameplay and some that don't at all. In fact, they just make the game less interesting and maybe it's more belabored or maybe it's not fun in that context or maybe it just doesn't make sense at all. Maybe it's just something that kind of just ruins the flow and the dynamics of a certain experience. And 
what I think is key in games is that you gotta you gotta design for ultimately you gotta design for the game as played versus the game as a symbol of something or as a communication device of some kind of thematic or narrative element. And this starts to get into places where narrative elements interfere with interactive elements and things like that. I'm I'm trying to think of an example. I suspect you have one in your head. Well, I don't have one, but I'll I'll explain to you what... uh, Maybe you can think of one while I'm explaining this. Maybe you're talking about lens flare in a driving game? No. (laughs) I mean, here's a better type of situation. It's like... Let's say there's a feature or a way the game plays. And they kind of talked about it in this one, actually, in Monaco, right? Where, okay... Uh, being able to see everything is not compatible with, uh, I guess, the idea of stealthiness, right? But if you can see everything, and I know this isn't, this isn't what they did, but this isn't what they said they did, because I, I could have sworn that when we were playing it on 360, you could see everything, but maybe my memory's foggy. Anyway, that doesn't matter. If you can see everything, then that makes it a more interesting interaction because you have information. Being able to see everything gives you information to make better decisions, and that makes the interaction more fun. But it's not as compatible with the idea of, I guess, what most people can conceive of when they think of a stealthy game. So what do you do? Do you make... Do you err on the side of theme and you make it map better as a theme? Because if you do that, it's going to play worse. Or do you say, look, this is actually ultimately about your play experience and not about some kind of weird ethereal platonic theme. And if you can make that concession to damage the purity of the theme, whatever that means, to make a game that plays better, I will take that trade every single day. You know what actually happens a lot? This happens a lot when artists clash with designers, because in those types of disputes an artist will want to make something, uh, and this isn't every time, but this is the most common case when things like this happen. The artist wants to make something that looks good as it looks good to him. And oftentimes, and there's a lot of subtlety here, but it's not really that important. Oftentimes what ends up happening is the artist makes something look good as if it was a static object, right? Mm -hmm. Because... It's, it's kind of like an idiosyncratic side effect of that artist's training being trained to make art as static things and not art in an interactive context. But a designer knows that you, the player does not look at the art in a static context. So a lot of times, for example, um, hey, I'll just give you this one example that happened to me a long time ago. An artist didn't want to draw... And this was a racing game I was working on. Actually, I'll just tell you which game. It was uh, It was one of the Cars games, the Disney Cars games. And one of the tracks that I was responsible for, the artist didn't want to draw fences around the edges of the track because he thought it would look ugly, because he thought it would destroy whatever vision he had for uh, the how good the art looked. Mm. And I tried to explain to him. I was like, look, you've got to know where the edge of the track is, otherwise you can't see what you're doing. So to him, this prospect was completely disruptive to the viewability or the beauty or the appreciability or whatever of the art. But the problem is is that nobody's going to look at that art in that way except for maybe some people who are evaluating your artwork as a uh, portfolio piece that don't play the game. So you can, I think you can deduce from that where this artist probably had his mind. Um, okay, so and this, but this happens a lot, and this is also this is also the reason I think why there are so many games that look like fog, dark cities without any colorful detail, when colorful details actually help you read things better and interact with them better, but it makes it helps you see better. So, so now I'm curious about this one example you just gave. Were you unable to find a compromise, some other way to see the edge of the track that wouldn't piss him off? Well, the compromise that I proposed is that, look, it doesn't have to be actually completely 
a contiguous barrier. As long as, from the player's perspective of driving, that they're able to notice it and discern it as such, right? Because the, the key is that you've got to be able to see where the edge is. So you can do that however you want. I consider it the artist's job, their responsibility to be able to devise a conceit that fits the theme of what the game is enough for it to make sense in the world, but at the same time also making sure that the design requirement, which is you got to be able to see what you're doing, you can you can you can fulfill both of them. A lot of the friction when these types of things happen is happens in situations where the artist is just he, they just have too much experience in classical classical training and not enough experience in making art for the interactive context. And you know, it also comes down to especially in the situation I was in, I think a lot of, a big factor was that I was I was bringing these ideas in a, to a studio where nobody had been considering these things. So think about it, right? If you're an expert at what you do and you've been doing something the same way for 10 years and someone comes in and says, well, no, uh, you have to actually consider all these things that are more important, um, you would have a tough time accepting that those things could be true also. Yeah, I, I think that's the case. But I would also wonder why why the company has people who don't work on this type of thing working on this type of thing. But I guess that's, that's kind of a different discussion. Well, yeah. Well, that's, that's also because, well, well, here's the problem. They do work on that kind of thing. They just never considered the considerations that I brought up until that point. Okay. You know, sort of on this topic, did you see, there was an article recently with, I think the guy who ran THQ or some big guy at THQ being relatively earnest in, in like what they were doing with uh, old properties, or I'm kind was of it, was it Ruben? Was because Jason Ruben took over the helm before? No, it, it wasn't Ruben. It wasn't the the head head guy. You know what? I I I'm remembering a little bit about the article, and it wasn't even that fascinating. It was more like it was like here's a bunch of things that we were working on, and what happened to them, or what might happen to them. I think maybe I only thought it was interesting because you worked at THQ, not for any other reason. So I should I should just drop it. Um, okay, well, I want to say one last thing about okay. Monaco. The thing, the thing that killed me in that game is that, I mean, there were so many beautiful ideas in that game, and it was such a great concept, but the fact that it was it, it was so hard to see certain things, especially what the guards were doing and what their, whether they could see you or not, and I, it was, I, I just, I felt it was just disappointing that I could not it was so hard to tell what certain things are in that game when that game <laughs> to me it's all about being able to read what's happening and react to it and that game didn't i felt like it didn't fulfill that ideally either uh, the irony to me is that that game does such a good job of having the bright colors that you talked about making things easier to see anyway uh we have to go to break again so we'll do that we'll come back and i think uh we'll have something else to talk about that's not monaco how's that All right, we'll be right back. Go. Go. And we're back once again for the remainder of Chatterbox Video Game Radio featuring no talking about money. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I will remind people about our Facebook page. It's slash Chatterbox Video Game Radio. Also, um, I made a mistake a couple weeks ago where I added your your talk about um, the mobile games, or free, not mobile games, but free to play. And uh, so it was up there for like a day, and then accidentally I got rid of it. So I put it back. And anyone who's hearing this would have seen that as the most recent show for about two days before this one came on the scene. So if somehow you missed that one and you want to hear Ara 
um, basically dissect free-to-play games for about an hour and a half. It's super thorough. Uh, it is there. It should be on our website. We're going to post it on the Facebook page as well. And anyway, it's there for your consumption. And I think you also put a, a fixed YouTube video up there, right? That's right. There's if, if you tried to listen to it and felt like your ears were being raped, and you can try again because I've, I've spent many laborious hours uh, cleaning up and removing all the pops and cracks and hisses because we, we didn't know it, but while we were recording, apparently the microphone decided to start dying. I think it was the computer, not the mic, if we want to so, place blame. but No, actually, no. well, that's what Aaron told me. Right. He said the, the microphone was starting to fail, one of the connections. But anyway, that this reminds me of a, a mini-announcement for all of the uh, five people in Phoenix locally who are also listening. So next week I'm actually going to be giving another talk, and it's uh, something else I'm even more excited about than this one. And I didn't think that was possible, but anyway, there's this thing next week happening called Tech Forum, which is actually happening at UAT, ironically enough. Yeah, they they do Tech Forum at least once a year, if not multiple times a year. I think they do it twice a year because they're calling it Spring Tech Forum. Okay. But anyway, uh, I'm going to be speaking there, and it's going to be next week, uh, next Wednesday, which should be either 25 or 26. And I'm going to be speaking at 1.30 there. So if you're local and you want to hear a really cool talk, uh, come on by. Yeah, so Wednesday is the 26th, and I suspect if you go to uat.edu, you can probably find information on that. So you said it was 1.30 next Wednesday? That's right. That's my slot. All right, cool. And, oh, I'll sh- I'll, maybe I'll tell you what it's about. I-, I was wondering if you were trying to keep that secret or not, so I didn't bring it up. No, not deliberately. Uh, so so far, it's titled Games, Learning, and Unintended Consequences. And actually, it's going to use a little bit of pieces of my previous talks, and it's going to connect them in ways that uh, are very fun. All right. I'm, I'm going to try to make it myself, so uh, feel free to come out and uh, and chat with us and hear what Ara has to say. Uh, and now, for, for talk that is not Monaco-related, you've, you've got a couple of things on your list, right? Yeah, so there is a piece on Gamma Sutra a while ago, about last week, maybe a little later. And this guy basically did an analysis on Kickstarter delivery rates. Meaning how many times there was a Kickstarter that actually resulted in in the thing that they planned to make in the first place? Right. Uh, okay. Basically, how many, how many of these projects are actually uh, finishing and how many of them are not? And because it's kind of unclear, of course, what a finished project means, especially in terms of Kickstarter or how finished it could be or whatever. Um, But so some of the details are kind of sketchy to sift through. But I think that we can say a few general things about it, and I think that they'll probably be what you would expect. Yeah, lots of things don't get finished. Lots of people don't get their stuff. And that's a bummer. or as the author rate, author liked to frame it, uh, the overall delivery rate is worse than Shaq's free throw percentage. <laughs> okay. Is he is he even still playing basketball? Didn't that anyway? I never. I don't know. I, I think so, but he's never been very good at free throws. The, even I even I knew that. Did you know that Shaq came to Phoenix for a while? Like he was uh, on the Phoenix team. Uh, no, I, I missed that part. I, it would be funny if I was wrong about this, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure he played for the Phoenix Suns for like one season and then went back to the Lakers or somewhere else. What the hell do I know? Well, the only other thing I know about him is that he did uh, royally chew out a colleague of mine once who was recording him during, I don't know, some kind of – there was some kind of situation and my friend was working uh, – <clears throat> colleague was working – uh, somewhere, and he was Shaq was doing some things that were not basketball, and he was as his job. He was directed to hey, take take some of this video around the office or whatever, and Shaq noticed and proceeded to chew him out royally. So that was a lot of fun, I'm sure. Okay, yeah, I'm curious about that story, but we can talk about it later. <laughs> so, so, so Shaq, in other words, has a, also besides his poor free throw percentage, a uh, very solid sense of uh, his personal space. All right, at the very least. Okay, okay so, so we're yeah. getting we're getting we're going off of track, but all right. So surprise, surprise, Kickstarters are not getting finished a lot. Th- this yeah. is the point when I I mentioned that I've been waiting for the. I did get my watch, 
my um, my Pebble, which is great. It took them quite a while, but they came through. However, I am still waiting for the uh, Sports Friends PS3 slash computer game, which includes the uh, that game I love so much that I can't even remember the name of it anymore that uses the PlayStation Move controllers. Yeah, the one that's uh, done? Sort of. Yeah, Are I mean, still working on it well, or what? The beta has been out for a long time, but they have not finished the game. And, like, of course, it was supposed to be out last October. I never really expected it to come out on time. But then they're like, okay, we're going to push for February. And then it's February, and they said, okay, it's not going to happen. We're not going to make it in time. But So now they just have this open-ended, we're going to release soon when we're ready. But my problem is that they have that open-endedness but are not communicating frequently. It's been like a month or more since I got the last communication. And I think when you're at that when expectations are high and you have you've pushed back a date and are not giving a solid date anymore it's important that you remain in in high communication and they are definitely not doing that and that is a cause of frustration for me if they were just communicating weekly or biweekly um then i would feel great about it it's kind of ironic how that stuff turns out because you you get the feeling that if a date is missed then if you're if you're responsible for missing something, you kind of you don't want to communicate because you don't want to be the broken record that keeps drawing attention to how late everything is getting. But on the other hand, and, and I, I agree with this, you're right, it's worse. The alternative is which is no communication is worse than being very verbose even though you're drawing attention to the fact that you're very late. Well here's the thing. Kickstarter allows you to communicate only with the backers of your project, right? So like you can put up messages that go on the website and get emailed and stuff, but you have to be logged in and be a backer in order to see the message. So, I mean, that would then get copied by people in, you know, press outlets and whatever. But for the most part, it would only get to people who have paid for your stuff. And those people deserve communication, even if you don't want to, you know, draw attention. So, yeah, well, yeah, and that's the other thing too, right? Is if you don't, and this is happening in Gran Turismo right now. If you, if you don't communicate and if you don't draw attention, the people who really care, who are the consumers who really care, they will be drawing the attention for you. Yeah, I agree, and remain a little bit upset. Yeah, well, that's all right. So, uh, okay, so let's get down to some of these actual numbers. So this guy found that. Basically, and, and we're just we're just talking about video game Kickstarter projects here. He said that, and there there was a time interval that he did a study on, which uh, I don't know what it is, but he said only about a third of successfully funded Kickstarter games have have, by his definition, fully delivered the title. And if you count uh, partial delivery, whatever that means, then you get about half of all the kickstarted games have partially developed. I suspect that means something like produced a beta. Yeah, like you can play it and you can get it, but it's not everything they said it would be. That's how I'd interpret that. Yeah. So, it's not all that surprising. I don't I wonder if other people are surprised because uh 50% success rate in terms of we're going to do this and then uh we actually finish the game like irrespective of whether it comes out or not. That sounds about right for video games. Yeah, but it also makes me super cautious about supporting anything, which is why I've only ever supported two things in my time. And it was people who had like a track record of producing and and high expectations that they would actually do it. And I do think that they're going to finish Sports Friends, I have no doubt, but uh, it's just frustrating their timeline. And in this particular case, it was interesting timing because it was like you can get the computer version or you can get the PlayStation 3 version. But since the time they announced the Kickstarter... And the release of the project, a new PlayStation has been released. And a lot of people, you know, like myself, want to no longer have the old machine hooked up and have just the new one. So they said, okay, we're going to release a PlayStation 4 version as well at some point. And anyone who got the, who ordered the PS3 will get for free the PS4 version. And so that's a, a good compromise for them. But I'm just glad that they're capable of doing that. Or at least they've claimed they're going to do that. That's something I would not bet on them actually doing. But, um, that's a, a weird situation that they fell into simply because of timing. You know what's funny for me? I feel like this is a case, the whole Kickstarter thing is a case of me having the me having too much knowledge 
and that preventing me from uh, having taken advantage of any of uh, these Kickstarter dynamics. What, what do you mean? You're, you're too used to the game development process that you won't become involved in supporting anybody? Because well, you, know, you know the risk? Because, uh, because I know how many things and how many ways – I know too much about how game development goes wrong that when Kickstarter first came out, I had, and I still don't have that much interest in it. And I had no interest in it at all. And right, everything about it made me think of this is crazy because most of these projects aren't going to get done anyway. And it always takes four times longer than you think it's going to take, even if you know what you're doing. Well, and it just sounded like a huge mess to me. Whereas everybody else apparently just jumped into it feet first and head first uh, without giving it a second. Yeah, well, you and I are, are adults experienced and risk averse. So it makes us think that way. But what's interesting to me is the fact that Kickstarter is mostly video games. So, I mean, mostly, literally, I think like two thirds or something are, are games, right? Or is it just one third? That's a good question. I don't have that info. Somebody talked about that recently, too, that a, a huge fraction of Kickstarter is video games. So if most video games aren't getting done on Kickstarter, it diffuses the entire Kickstarter yeah. process. Yeah. Saying, I wonder if that's by money uh, or is it by number of entries? I, I believe it's by money, but yeah, I, that, I actually that totally don't know. That totally makes sense. I'll buy that. Yeah. Anyway, we're, we're coming to a close again. But, uh, yeah, there was something else I wanted to say about Kickstarter. I think I lost it, but... Um, anyway, I'm still counting down the days for Sports Friends to come out, and then I hope that I can get real friends to come play Sports Friends with me because it's local multiplayer only, and that's kind of what's going to make it awesome. So, anyway, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Any uh, any short closing message, Aura? The one I always give, which is good night, guys. Good night. Listening to Chatterbox Video Game Radio. Tune in next week for more tips and info and the latest and greatest in video gaming. And remember, all your base are belong to us.